You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Well, it is fantastic to be here. Uh, and um, a special hello to our friends in Inverurie and also in Aberdeen North who are also joining us this morning. It's brilliant to have you here too. We are continuing our series in John's Gospel. We're looking at the seven I am sayings of Jesus. So these are moments in John's Gospel where Jesus shows us who he is and what he's here to do by saying, I am something. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd. And this morning we're gonna be looking at I am the gate, which you find in John chapter 10. So we're gonna read that in a moment. But before we kind of look at John chapter 10, it feels appropriate that we look at the context of John chapter 10, which is in John chapter nine. You'll never believe it, John chapter nine. And uh, what happens at the start of John chapter nine is Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come across a guy who never in his life before has he he been able to see. He's been blind from birth. And they have a discussion about that guy and, and his particular situation. And in the context of that conversation, Jesus says this. He says, as long as it's day, we must, we must do the works of him who sent me. And that word sent, just log that away there for a moment. Him who sent me. We're doing the works of him who sent me because then later on Jesus takes, well, he basically spits in the ground. He makes a kind of a mud paste. Poor guy, he smears it on this guy's eyes. This guy must have been thinking, who is this man? Um, And then he says to the guy, hey, now that you've got that mud all over your face, you'll need to wash that off. Go and wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And... Because John is wanting to make a particular theological point alongside just telling the story of what happened, uh, he tells us, he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he says, the word Siloam means sent. And so it seems like John is telling us that there are two things happening at the same time. One of them is he's saying this guy amazingly has his eyes opened by Jesus, but also Jesus is telling us that he was sent to open all of our eyes. We, in a sense, we were all born blind. We were all born unable to see. And G- one of the reasons that Jesus was sent by the Father was to open all of our eyes. This concept of sentness and Jesus being the Son sent by the Father is littered throughout John's Gospel. In fact, I think it's like 55 times in John's Gospel Jesus uses this language of sentness. It's really important we recognize that. Jesus is crystal clear about who he is, and he's crystal clear about why he came, why he was sent. The reason that's important is because, uh, you know, 55 times in John's gospel, Jesus is saying, the Father was sent by the Son, I'm the one who was sent by my Father, we must do the works of, Uh, him who sent me, all those, you know, so the the son is sent by the father. But at the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
So Jesus is crystal clear on what, who he is and why he's sent. It's really, really important that we understand that we too are sent. It's like the big theological theme of John's gospel. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son then sends us into the world in the same way. And so before we, I know this is the world's longest introduction, but before we come on to John chapter 10, let's just pause in John chapter 9 and just start to think about where we're going to be tomorrow or where we're going to be later on this week, all of the places that we're going to find ourselves in. I love thinking about that. I love thinking about how we gather on a Sunday and then we're scattered on a Monday to all kinds of places, to the office, to the, to the home office, the virtual office, uh, to the doctor's surgery or the hospital or the school or the university, or, um, the, the school gate, whatever it is. Wherever we are in that place, it's really important to understand that Jesus has sent us into the world. And so three questions kind of come into view. The first one is, is this where I'm sent to be? Is this where I'm sent to be? We don't want to just assume that because I happen to find myself in a particular job or a particular school or a particular um, medical practice or whatever, that that's where I'm supposed to be. That's where I'm sent to be. And so is this where I'm sent to be? Second question, is this who I'm sent to be? Wherever we sent to, whichever group of people we're sent to be with, it's really important that we show up in that place as the person who's being formed by the Spirit and the Word of God, being formed and made and molded, recreated by Jesus. And so we need to think about who am I being sent to be? And then the third question is, what am I sent to do when I get there tomorrow? Jesus, what are you asking of me? What are you expecting me to do? Um, there's a story that I love. I think it's originally a J. John story, but I'm not completely sure, um, about a young woman who just recently graduated from teacher training college. And she applied for a whole bunch of jobs and, and she gets offered a job in a city that she's never been to before. And so what does she do? First of all, she prays. So Jesus, is this the job you're calling me to take? And her sense is that, yes, it is. And so she accepts the job. She goes there on the first day. She goes into the staff room. And the atmosphere is absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, people are, like, giving daggers, like, to each other. They're glaring at each other. And there's so much suspicion. And, and no one is talking at all. It's just horrible. And then she thinks, well, I'll at least make myself a cup of tea. So she goes over to the kettle, she boils the kettle, she goes to the fridge to take out the milk, and when she opens the fridge door, there are like 25 bottles of milk in the fridge. She's like, this is so weird. And then she looks more closely, she sees that every single bottle of milk has got somebody's name written on it in marker pen. And then there's a line around the milk. It's as if to say, this is my milk. Keep your hands off my milk. She's like, this is awful. So she, next morning, she's praying about the situation and how the atmosphere is just terrible. And she has an idea. And so on the way into work the following day, she stops at the supermarket. She buys a massive bottle of milk. And then when she gets to the staff room, instead of taking the marker pen that everyone else is using and writing her own name on it, she just simply writes, help yourself. I love it. And as a result of that, the atmosphere, the environment of that school sh takes a, a shift 
on that day from uh, suspicion and distrust towards community and kindness. And then as a result of that, she has the opportunity to share her faith and the reason why she did it all in the first place. So really important questions to ask. Where am I sent to be? Who am I sent to be? What am I sent to do? Okay, like I said, world's longest introduction, but now I am the gate, John chapter 10. So John chapter nine was the context. This is uh, the text itself. John chapter 10, verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the, the sheep haven't listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the text that we're going to look at today. So what is Jesus doing? What's he really saying when he's saying to them, I'm the gate? Well, I think four things, and I'll think them briefly, I promise. The first thing is, he's addressing their sin. He's addressing their sin. Verse 7, very truly I tell you, I'm the gate. So this is a, a teaching that is directed towards somebody. You know, it's not just like he's just speaking to himself, he's speaking to a you. And so it's important that we find out who that you is. Well, brilliantly, we don't have to look very far because if you look at your Bible, you go up from verse seven and up towards verse one, then in verse one, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you Pharisees. So this is some teaching that is directed not towards the, the, his usual group, which is his followers. This is directed towards the Pharisees. Now, you might be new to church, new to the Bible. You might not know who Pharisees are, but the Pharisees are kind of like the pastors of their day, right? So they're called to be leaders and pastors. They're supposed to be kind and gentle and uh, take responsibility in a pastoral sense for the people of God. And, uh, and yet, mostly in the Gospels, they come across as really, really mean and not very nice. And, and that's kind of what happens here. So, so what you have, John chapter 9, the guy who's born blind, he, he washes the mud off his eyes, and lo and behold, he's been completely healed. And you would think that his pastors, the Pharisees, would be like, that's so brilliant. We've been praying for you for years about that, and now you're completely healed. That's brilliant. Instead, they're furious. And partly they're furious because it's happened on the Sabbath, but also they're furious because people are starting to say, hey, this, this is God who's doing this, and they really don't want to acknowledge that. And so they start interrogating this guy who's been healed. Like, you know, like, just tell us more about this. And what they really want him to say is, well, I don't know what it was, but it definitely wasn't God, but he won't, he won't say that. And so after, you know, some time trying to persuade him to say what he doesn't want to say, they then go, well, let's just speak to his parents instead. And so they go and speak to his parents. And they start, you know, interrogating and intimidating them and trying to get them to say that it wasn't God. 
and and you can see them kind of stumbling over their words and wondering how they should like or what they should say and and they really don't want to say the wrong thing they're terrified of saying the wrong thing in fact in chapter 9 verse 22 it, eventually his his parents just say you need to go and speak back to our, our our son because because he's old enough to speak for himself and it says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And um, so th their fear is that they'll turn up to the synagogue one day and the door will be closed in their face. They'll, be, they'll not be welcome anymore. And so they're just terrified and tongue-tied. And so eventually the Pharisees go back to this young guy and they're like, no, you just need to say it wasn't God and that Jesus isn't the Messiah. And, and he won't say it. Uh, and so eventually, I mean, this, this is awful. For coming from, you know, religious leaders, it says in chapter 9, verse 28, they hurled insults at him. Just think about that. And then in verse 34, they say to him the most horrific thing that you could possibly imagine. They say, you were steeped in sin at your birth. It's like, what a disgusting thing to say to someone. You know, the people who you trust as your, as your pastors, you, you, it's like, you disgust me. You were steeped in sin at your birth. And then eventually it says that they threw him out of the synagogue. What I love is the next thing that happens is, very, end of chapter 9, Jesus who, goes looking for the, this guy who's been thrown out and rejected by the synagogue, and he shows them, it shows this guy who he really is in a, just a really beautiful and intimate way, because Jesus is the kind of guy who goes looking for people like that. But these religious leaders, they're, they're cruel, they're abusive, they're using their power to belittle and demean and condemn. They're, they're holding over people. If you say the wrong thing or if you are the wrong person, then we're going to put you out of the synagogue and we're going to close the door in your face. You'll not be welcome. And to those people, Jesus says, I'm the gate. Very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate. In other words, you may think that it's okay to shut the door in people's faces to prevent them from encountering God. You're, you know, like, you, you disgust me. I'm the gate for the sheep, not you. This is Jesus directly confronting their sin. I don't know what kind of tone you a voice you think Jesus said it in. Whenever I've read this before, I think, oh, Jesus is probably just saying, you know, I'm the gate. But he's not. He's saying, I'm the gate in a really menacing kind of punk way. This is the same Jesus who in John chapter 2, he, he experiences the religious structures and the authorities in the same way. He can't believe it. He goes into the temple and, uh, you know, th there are people there who are exploiting the poor. And what they're doing is they're saying, oh, you want to bring gifts to God? Yeah, your gifts, they're not, going to, they're not acceptable to God. You'll have to buy our gifts. And oh, you, you want to buy our gifts? Yeah. The thing is, your money doesn't work in here. You have to use our money. And so then they set up these horrendous exchange rates and so on. So that these poor people are being exploited twice over. And Jesus is like, get out of here and he turns over the tables and he drives them out of the temple because he just he just doesn't want them anywhere near God and, and what uh, uh, and the worship of God 
You know, we're coming up to a time of year where we'll see lots of pictures of little baby Jesus in the manger. And, you know, little baby Jesus, no crying he makes, and all of that stuff, which of course is theological nonsense. But, but the truth is that Jesus isn't in his manger anymore. Um, he, he, he's, uh, and he's really angry. He's angry about oppression and injustice and poverty and, and abuse. Like if, you, if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone using their power to intimidate or to exploit or to abuse or whatever it is, and you've often perhaps wondered, I wonder what Jesus thinks about them and what they did. He's furious. And so we need to reset our understanding of who Jesus is. But the other thing is, you know, as we see Jesus addressing the Pharisees for their sin, we should just recognize that as well as the speck in their eye, there's also a plank in my eye. And so we need to say, Jesus, if you address them with their sin, please, Jesus, would you address me for my sin? Would you show me? You search my heart, O oh God. I had a spiritual father when I was a teenager. I mean, at the time, he seemed about as old as God, but looking back now, he was probably younger than I am now. And uh, uh, like, he was just such a godly man, and, and I just wanted to know, I remember asking him, what are your spiritual practices? You know, like, how, how, do, you, how do you spend time with God? And he, and he actually directed me to John chapter 1. Right at the beginning, you know, it's that beautiful hymn of, of theology. In, a, in the beginning was, uh, the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That finishes up with, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, sent by the Father, full of grace and truth. And this guy said, so I approach Jesus every day with an open Bible and an open heart, and I say, Jesus, give me both barrels. Give me full grace. And for a moment, he just sits under the grace of God and he just receives the, the kindness, the mercy, the grace of God and just allows his identity, be, identity to be formed by the love of God. And then when he's kind of just got himself into a place of really understanding his identity in Christ for the day, he then says, and now, Jesus, now I've had full grace. Now I want full truth. Tell me what you see in my life. I receive your truth. Jesus addresses their sin, and hopefully he addresses our sin, our sin too, if we'll invite him to. Secondly, he's flinging open the gate. It seems to me that Jesus is drawing a direct contrast between the Pharisees and their lack of welcome, their exclusion, in fact, and Jesus and his radical welcome. And, and he says, I'm the gate. And it, it, it's a really, really wide open gate, isn't it? He says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and they'll go out and find pasture. It's like this is a gate that's permanently open, isn't it? It's propped open. The hinges don't really work anymore. This is a gate that welcomes everyone and excludes no one. Throughout the Gospels, we encounter a Jesus who extends the radical welcome of God to everyone. You know, the, the rabbis and the, and the Pharisees, they would never have been teaching the kinds of people that, G, that Jesus was teaching. You know, they, they, they only wanted to, to spend their time with the intellectual elite. And Jesus is teaching fishermen 
and tax collectors and, and terrorists. You know, the, the rabbis, the, they, they would have only ever taught men. And yet Jesus is often to be found. Mary, Martha, uh, the, the Samaritan woman, he's always teaching women. And usually the rabbis would have had nothing to do with someone who had a history of sin of any kind. And yet Jesus is always spending time with people who've got history of sin. And then usually a rabbi would give a very wide berth to people who were sick because they would have become, in their belief, ceremonially unclean. And so instead, you know, Jesus doesn't only spend time with sick people, but he spends time with dying people and even dead people. And usually a religious leader only kept company with adults, but Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do you see, Jesus is just over and over and over again extending the radical welcome of God. The Pharisees kept the doors closed to all of these people and Jesus flung open the gate. That's what he does. That's who he is. I remember speaking to a guy who'd never knowingly been to a church before. And I said to him, you know, like, what do you imagine a church to be like? You know, like, what is the preconception you have in your mind of what church is? And he said this, he said, I picture a closed door. I was like, wow. Where do you get that from? And he said, well, isn't it strange how all the church buildings seem to have been designed to look closed even when they're open? You know, and you, you just picture this big rectangular box with a kind of a steeple or a spire at one end and big closed wooden doors at the other end. And so our job as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to communicate that there is no such thing as a closed door. If you want to pursue Jesus, you'll discover that he is pursuing you. And that's why we've been praying as a church on weekdays, 12 o'clock every day, setting our alarms and just saying, Jesus, wherever I find myself today, would you fill me here? Would you use me here? Would you save these people here? Because what God's doing in our church, in our family, and, and please God, would you do it more, is turning us outwards and extending the welcome of Jesus to more people. He's flinging open the gates. Thirdly, he's clarifying their devotion. He's bringing clarity to their devotion. Jesus, of course, says, I am the gate. He doesn't say, I am one of a range of options when it comes to gates. And he, you know, he says in verse 9, whoever enters through me will be saved. He doesn't say, whoever enters through me or one of the other gates will be saved. If you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, you're probably thinking, gosh, that's quite a bold claim to claim to be the only way to abundant life. But that is what he says. I know that some people will say, oh, Jesus, amazing teacher, one of the best teachers who's ever lived you know, in the history of the world, just a remarkable teacher. I mean, I don't follow his teaching, you know, or I try to follow his teaching, but really I'm also following other people's teaching. Like Jesus doesn't give us that option of just considering him to be a great teacher because the great teacher says, I'm the only way. I'm the gate. And so each one of us has to consider, and maybe you're today just wondering, like, is Jesus one of the ways? No, 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 he's the way. And you can choose to follow him and find your way all the way to God for eternity. But the thing is, what I've been struck with is, is just the reality of the, the present tense nature of this text. 
He doesn't say, I was the gate. He says, I am the gate. You know, it seems to be a reference, all of these I am sayings seems to be a reference to Moses meeting God in the book of Exodus and God introducing himself as I am who I am, this kind of eternally present one, just always with us, always becoming present, always breaking into every situation. And that's, that's who he's introduced in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And like I became a Christian when I was 15, and he was my gate when I was 15. Like I, 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 I hadn't been a Christian, and then I researched what being a Christian was, I decided to become a Christian, and then, and then I threw myself on my bed one day, on, uh, having got home from school, and I made Jesus the Lord of my life. And I was so pleased, it was the best decision I'd ever made. He was my gate, but Jesus is challenging me. I am the gate. I am the gate. He's clarifying my devotion. You know, today, or even this week, you know, like the thing I felt specifically challenged about was to do with Black Friday. You know, on Black Friday, there's a, a series of websites that you know, it's like the portal to abundant life. Like if I go through this portal, I'll find myself really, really happy and content and satisfied and full of joy. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't be fooled. Don't misplace your affection or your attention. I am the gate today and on Black Friday, and I'll always be the gate. If ever you want to find real true life, I'm the way. And so for each one of us who follow Jesus, we need to decide, is he still the gate? Is he still the source of our joy, our peace, and our eternal life? He's clarifying our affection. And finally, he's laying out an invitation. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life. That's the invitation, life and life to the full. During lockdown, a friend of mine sent me a little postcard of a painting by Caravaggio, and, and I loved it so much, and I've really experienced it ministering to me in my devotional times as I've, you know, sitting there with an open Bible and an open heart. And uh, I love it so much that I got it uh, framed and, uh, like, a bigger version framed and put on my wall in my study. I mean, it's not the original that's in the National Gallery, but it's, like, it looks good. And uh, perhaps we could just have that painting up on the screen now. It's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's painted by Caravaggio in 1601, but it could easily have been like painted yesterday, I think. And in the painting, this is called Supper at Emmaus. So this is the two disciples who've walked with Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And there they are having dinner with him in Emmaus. And so you can see there Jesus in the center and he's kind of holding up his hand as if to bless us. And sometimes I just allow Jesus to just bless me as I, as I look, uh, meditate on the painting. Uh, and then in the, in the background there, he's like an innkeeper or something like that. And he's just transfixed on the teachings of Jesus. And sometimes I place myself in his shoes and just allow myself to sit under the teachings of Jesus. And then there, the two guys who are my favorite guys are, are these two unnamed disciples. And um, so on the left, I, I love being this guy. 
he's like sitting on the edge of his chair and he's absolutely transfixed by Jesus. His eyebrows are so raised that they're almost up to his eye line and he just can't believe it. It's like he's saying, this is amazing. And he's leaning in, he's leaning towards Jesus. And then the guy on the other side, he's kind of like the opposite. He's like an older guy, but he's on the, with one hand, he's just reaching towards Jesus and he's just clutching hold of him. Sometimes I place myself in that place. I'm just clutching hold of Jesus, reaching for Jesus. But with the other hand, he's reaching towards us, isn't he? And he's kind of beckoning. He's like, quick, come here. Come and be part of this. Come and enjoy this. Uh, but though, all of those things are brilliant. But my favorite thing about this painting is that there's a seat at the table for me. And as if to make that really clear, quite strangely, right at the very front of the table is with his feast laid out, quite a strange feast. It's like roast chicken and fruit, which is quite an unusual mixture. But right on the edge of the table is a fruit bowl and it's just teetering on the brink of falling off. I don't know whether you can see that, I hope you can. And so it's almost like um, Caravaggio is saying, quick, come and join at the table, come and take your place at the table, just in time to catch the fruit bowl before it falls off. But I think Caravaggio is trying to capture something that Jesus communicates over and over again, not least in this passage in John chapter 10, which is there's a seat at the table for you. You're invited to be with Jesus. You're invited to come and join at his feast. You're invited to come and be present as he breaks bread. He's the gate. In him, through him, with him, we find true abundant life. And so the invitation is there for us. Jesus is laying out an invitation. I'm the gate. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and they'll go out and they'll find pasture. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. And first of all, Jesus, we want to repent. Because we, we acknowledge that even in the last week or so, we have tried to get our way through other gates to get to God or to get to, to life, to get to satisfaction or joy or peace. And we say, we're so sorry. We recognize that you are the only way. You are the only gate. And so we choose afresh you, your ways, your purposes, your plans, your agendas, your life. We surrender our own ways. We choose, we choose yours. And Jesus, we, we take our seat at the table, present with you. And wherever we are, whether we're in in the north of Aberdeen or Inveruri or somewhere else on the face of the earth. Jesus, you're here. Right now.
We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love. We invite you to speak your truth into the core of who we are. And we think about where, wherever we'll be tomorrow. And we say to you, Jesus, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Amen.